welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Jonathan Edwards and joining me as always, my co-hosts, Jan Vermouth and Scott Burleson. As listeners know, on the show, we love to dive deep into innovation and business theories and frameworks. But at the end of the day, what really matters is actually building products and services that people want in order to build successful businesses. Well, our guests today definitely know a lot about that. Murat Gurkar and Francesco Cardoletti are both successful and experienced serial entrepreneurs who have built businesses in diverse industries and geographical regions. Murat has built and operated ventures in retail fashion, concierge services, commodities trading, advising micro startup for equity, and for the past 10 years, he has ventured into pharma. Namely, in 2013, he founded Ideogen with his father and brothers, a 360 degrees commercialization platform for specialty therapies, mainly orphan or rare disease, in which he currently serves as chief commercial officer. Francesco has built and operated ventures in the health, telecom, fintech, fashion, and edutech sectors in both the UK and the US. He is the co-founder and was the CEO of PawSquad, a company providing telemedicine for pets, which was acquired by IVC Evidencia in 2018. He currently works as strategy and product lead at Unilever Foundry, where he works with the best scale-ups and startups in the world to launch disruptive innovation on a global scale. Murat and Francesco have worked together as business partners in the past, and as all great teams, they are very complementary in their approach and ways of thinking, which is the reason why we decided to invite both of them together on the show. So Murat and Francesco, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you for having us. Okay, so maybe uh, at first we you could just tell us a bit more about how you actually know each other. So I understand you worked on some project or projects together. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about that? Maybe Murat, you can start. Sure. Um, so I mean, we actually know each other from Boston. Um, uh, completely unrelated. We weren't working together at the time, although we were doing similar things in regards to our, let's say, extracurricular activities. Um, and um, at that time, uh, you know, we had obviously a, a great chemistry uh, from from many perspectives and then ultimately eventually when we moved to uh i guess independently moved to new york um we kept contact uh where uh i'll let francesco say what he was doing but he was working at telecom in a corporate structure and uh i was uh, at that time uh, just dabbling in investment banking at ubs uh, in new york so so that was kind of where we both kind of looked at ourselves in the uh, mirror and said, we hope this is not end all be it all. Uh, and we hope we can find something that's going to spice up our, um, let's say, uh, work life. Uh, but but we didn't really know what to do. Uh, so so we kind of 
you know, we're, we're just in the search for, for, you know, what kind of products could we launch? What kind of services could we do? I, I think I still remember it was like lunch times at UBS when I was just emailing him, we have to get out of here, you know, we have to figure out something, something other than this life. And then, but I will let Francesco maybe take it forward from there. Uh, that, that's more of a, uh, let's say emotional intro. And maybe he can give the more technical background <laughs> to all of it. So yeah, I mean, so so Murat and I were 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 good friends in Boston. We were doing a lot of uh, interesting things, you know, within the entertainment uh, kind of like uh, space in Boston, and um, always wanted to do something together. M Murat is a, is a, is very creative, you know, from a business st standpoint, right? So there were always conversation around what business launch, you know, what could we do, how can we take over the world. And when we came to New York, you know, and kind of the, one of the things about New York is that, you know, it, it, it's an incredibly energetic city, right? So you always want to, you always want to leave your, your, your imprint in the city, right? And so, yeah, so there have always been a lot of conversations. You know, we talked about a bunch of stuff from kind of like, you know, how to take, how, how to build a business around QR codes to kind of like, uh, how can we build like consultancy for small, for, for small enterprises to more kind of like, crazy endeavor that we got into like you know and exporting chicken feet to china you know so like literally you know we we were really dabbling into like what are we going to do with our life neither neither him or i had a lot of experience from building the businesses right and i was i mean to me like the concept of kind of like uh, of product and startups was not really in my in my frame of reference although to be fair i was working in one but that's just to tell you how how detached the two things were and you know, and and we just landed on an opportunity, and we decided to take it, right? And so that's how we started working together. Exactly. I think one thing to add there, just uh, one of the ventures I remember. I think the QR one was uh, QR code one was very interesting because we were emailing literally um, uh, researchers in in Japan uh, uh, who had the most advanced like QR code technology at the time and obviously we didn't really understand the technology but just my creativity at least was going crazy just thinking oh my god if i can have a qr code on a piece of paper that i can store a whole movie in would i actually be able to you know just send that over through like text message and then someone can watch it you know and and, and all of these things kind of uh, i think piled on but another one uh, that was a good one I, i'm glad you remembered that by the way um another one was uh, you know there was this girl who who was at parsons who, who was a design major and uh, she had from her home uh, invented a dog food that is or pet food that was literally made uh, for her own pet initially where she would cook fresh foods in her house really nicely packaged since he comes from Parsons design school one of the best uh, in the world if anything and and you know it was like really cool names awesome packaging and I think she was most probably ahead of her time because she was the one of the first foods I ever saw that had vitamins infused, but for dogs, right? This is way before vitamins became a craze. So it wasn't like back then you had drinks with omega-3 boosted or eggs where they're kind of promoting, oh my God, look how much of vitamin D it has in it or any of that stuff. So she was really ahead of her time. And, and we kind of were going to help her scale up 
Uh, and I remember doing the business plan with Francesco where we're like, okay, she currently cooks in her oven. How many meatballs can she make? Uh, and then what if we take this to Brooklyn to, to like a, a commercial uh, cooking location? How many meatballs can we actually spit out of there? What would the cost be? So we traveled to Brooklyn. We talked to the, the actual places that we could outsource it to and all of that. But it was like the real, uh, let's say, entrepreneurial process of in-field investigation, trying to use as little resources as possible, mainly sweat equity really out of uh, everything since we're trying to start up. But it taught, it, it, I think it got us through the whole process of, uh, of learning how to evaluate and, and plan and validate or, or at least analyze how to create the business model towards operations before execution, right? And and the execution is most probably the most complicated part, by the way. Uh, the, the planning is, I think, for seasoned people, is most probably you sleep, you wake up, you plan it, and it's done, you know, uh, at the end of the day. But yeah, that, that was a good one, Leon, yeah, so uh, Francesco. Yeah. I, I love to get back into, of course, the details, I mean, of... Uh, uh, how do you validate an idea? How do you find ideas? We're going to dive into all this a bit later on in the show. Uh, for the time being, I was wondering if you could maybe tell us. So as I understand it, you didn't have any uh, prior entrepreneurial experience before bouncing ideas between the two of you, or did you? And if you did, what was your what were your first entrepreneurial experiences? Can you maybe, that you actually you know, realized? Or can you tell us a bit yeah. about that? Well, well I, I mean, I thought about this quite a bit. I tried to dig really deep into, you know, what was the first one? Because after a, uh, a couple of them and a couple of uh, negative experiences and then, uh, you know, some positive ones, you start to forget the first lessons you ever learned in life. Uh, and and uh, I want to go back to Boston, actually, where Francesco mentioned, and this is, of course, related to me uh, a little bit, but Francesco mentioned we were dabbling in the entertainment business. And, and basically where I started off was, you know, I was in college and uh, I had absolutely no interest in school, although I was in Boston University. Uh, I immediately wanted to start making money. I mean, that was basically already in my DNA uh, before I got to university. It's what can I start? How quickly can I start it? And I'll take any chance I can get basically to get in there. So my brother happened to, you know, have a, uh, let's say our neighbor at the time was one of the biggest uh, promoters for, for all of the night and let's say entertainment events and uh, from, from events to nightlife and all that for all of the international students that were going to uh, school in Boston. And, uh, you know, my brother told him that I was a very social guy, that I needed to make some friends because I just arrived. He didn't want me, you know, uh, he didn't want to look after me for too long, basically. <laughs> so, so, um, uh, and I was given an opportunity to start as a flyer boy, basically just going around. Uh, and I didn't really need it, by the way. I just wanted to do something. So I got out there and basically was given like a thousand or two thousand flyers uh, every single day to go and flyer the hell out of Boston City and, you know, uh, upset a lot of people's you know, cars and uh, general organization uh, of, of their homes or doors or whatever it might be. And and one thing led to another throughout this process. You know, I, I did the flyering, then I started to get to work in the uh, in the doors at the end of the nights because I was still too young to be working the clubs. So I used to hand out flyers at the end of the nights at 2 a.m. And then one thing led to another and I started to realize, oh my God, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, I can do more than this. I can bring a lot of people if I just use my brain basically. So I established a company called Gig Hoster. Uh, it was my first ever 
company that I established actually. And uh, with what Gig, Gig Hoster did was uh, I I found a gap in the in the whole promoting space. You know, everyone was trying to bring lists of people of like 20, 30 people and they get paid for that and maybe get a commission from whatever's being sold or, or, or to those people. Uh, but I needed to go wholesale. So I actually went around to a whole bunch of universities, uh, student councils. And I, I went to the presidents of the student councils and I said, hey, do you guys actually, you know, raise funds? Uh, and, and uh, you know, how do you make money? Well, they're like, you know, we do whatever cupcakes or <laughs> cupcake sales or, or like some, something related to university events that that raised funds and all of that and i said are you able to raise good money and they're like yeah you know once in a while we can do something but we still need more funding and i said okay how about this uh you guys send me every tuesday and thursday um as many people as you can from your university and i just want first name last name emails telephone numbers i'll put them on the list for a reduced comp into uh, the, the main, let's say, volume driving clubs, which were made for the uh, people who are already 18, right? So, so it's, uh, they could still enter those clubs. And, and then what I will do is I will pay you a dollar for every person that you send to me. And I went and did this with maybe like three, four different universities. Uh, and ultimately, I went back to one of the biggest clubs and I said, guys, uh, I'm going to start bringing you guys thousands of people, like literally in one night, you know, <laughs> thousands of people. And they were like, impossible. You know, no one can do it. The biggest, the biggest list they had from individuals were like 150 people, 200 people. And they work with maybe 20, 30 promoters. And, and that's how they kind of pack the place. Um, but I ended up um, getting all of the student council members to do the running for me. And I didn't pay them anything. So I had no payroll until they actually succeeded and I got paid. So and then I went and negotiated a rate of whatever three dollars uh, for 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 every reduced ticket that I brought in. Nice. And then at the end of the day, I had this you know funneling of of people, and it ended up being like you know first time around was like you know four hundred people, next time was like seven hundred people, the time after it was, and this went for a while until I had the bad experience that one promoter got really pissed off uh, that that I that I was stealing all of their income, I guess, and then somehow politically maneuvered the owners of the company to have me ousted, you know. But it, I made really good money for like a good six months, seven months, uh, and and this was uh, this was one of my first, I would say, you know, really entrepreneurial and in terms of how I cracked the problem around a service that that would both be a win for me, but a wholesale win for, let's say, the, the because it was a B2B service, right? It wasn't really to the end customer, although the end customers were also gaining a discount on their entry into theirs. So kind of win, win, win. So this is my story from my side. Has a that's lot more juicy details, but yeah, Fantastic story. I, I, I love it. And actually, um, so... In a way, would you say uh, gig hoster was a bit like uh, you playing the role of a broker in this? Uh, you were bringing, you know, getting clients for different venues. Let's say an and agent. Let's an say agent. an agent. Yeah, yeah very exactly. good. And 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 so this gap in the market. How did you actually? Do you remember actually when you realized there was this gap? I mean, what was the when did the, when did the light bulb uh, go off? Well, I mean, the light bulb went off came when on, I actually, I would say. yeah, yeah, late, well, both came on and off. Uh, <laughs> it it kind of doesn't happen just with a steady on, you know, it goes on and off for a while until it really goes eureka moment and the bulb explodes, you know. Um, I think, I think it was, um, I think it came out of a necessity to want to, 
earn more and make more for myself than what I saw other people were doing in my former function of liaring and just showing up, you know, twice a, a week and seeing the amount of money we made, although we were doing all the dirty work, you know, they, they were making all the money. And, and, and so I kind of found a, a way to, to kind of game the system, if you will. Uh, and obviously that's what, hence the reaction that I got, you know, from, from some of the other promoters who were doing pretty well for themselves. Uh, but, but it came out of a necessity and a need, uh, to want something better for myself, uh, to feel that, that, you know, the, the time I'm spending is more efficient in, in its utility. Uh, and as a result of it, I, I was, you know, I had the conviction and commitment to go and convince a bunch of people who, who, who had no clue this could be possible, right? I mean, that was the third factor uh, out of all of that. And what is interesting is it sounds as if it really stems from uh, taking action. Uh, so you, you first actually took action in this flyers business and you would have never discovered this opportunity had you not been working in the flyers business and and actually there's this uh, Sar um, uh, Sarah Sarasvati who, who wrote about effectuation um, about how entrepreneurs do exactly this they start from uh, somewhere they just start somewhere and then with their means the means that they have they'll try and and move forward and 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 see where they can get rather than the, rather than setting uh, very precise goals they'll just see okay where can I go from where from where I am now. Yeah, brilliant story. I, I love it. So Francesco, what about you? What did you uh, remember your first uh, uh, entrepreneurial experience? So I kind of, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and I've never been interested in it, right? That's the reality. <laughs> and that's for, you know, I went to, you know, I went to study engineering in college just because, why not, right? Because I should go work in a large company. I'm not sure why I had this, 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 this vision of like, you know, running a multinational corporation, you know, that was my, my ambition. And, um, you know, and, but in reality, you know, I, as, as I went to Boston, I actually did realize that I had no interest whatsoever into running a large corporation. And similar to Murat, I was dabbling a lot in nightclubs, just in a completely different perspective, right? For me, you know, I, I, and I don't know if you call that, I don't necessarily believe that I was an entrepreneur and dabber, you know, but I had the responsibility of feeling like nightclubs every night of the week, right? Because I was running those nightclubs. And so to me, it was more of a system thinking kind of thing. How do I actually do that at scale? How do we bring people in, right? Kind of like, what is the, what is the bottleneck in our operations? Because ultimately, you know, we, we need to have 500, 1,000 people every night coming, listening to different music. So therefore, you know, you have different targets, different crowds, different concepts. So sorry, just to interrupt you, I'm not quite. Sure. You actually were running nightclubs. Is is that? I was running the nightclub. I were running the promotion of several nightclubs, right? And so, so we had responsibility with the people that owned those nights, if you wish, right? Like we had to bring constantly, like again, five hundred, a thousand people. So how do you do that, right? So what is the process through which you constantly bring crowds, right? Both from a concept development, which goes from like the theme of the night to like the 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 DJ that must be there to kind of like uh, what type of crowds you're going to attract to who is actually going to go into the job, right? Because obviously I cannot do it by myself. So it was not, so, so the, the, again, it's not so much entrepreneurial endeavor because my money was not really at risk, right? And, and, but it was more of like, again, how do you build growth, right? How do you do that at scale, right? So it's kind of like almost like if you think about it from a startup standpoint, right? It's not the early stage validation of a problem, but 
now that you know that you have a concept, how do you build it? How do you scale it, right? How do you deliver that value? So that's kind of like, I never thought about it as entrepreneurial. I, I guess in retrospect, I can think, I can see how that experience applies to what I do now in many ways, right? But yeah, my first experience was literally with Murad, right? It was like when I decided to quit my startup that I was working in and kind of like take a plunge into risking my time, my money, you know, my kind of like my, my blonde hair to, to do what I did. Hands why it's not blonde anymore, you know? right? That's why it's white. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've talked a, a bit about some um, some I, I would say successes. Do you do you remember some resounding uh, failures? If you're willing to share in in some of your your ventures, and what did you learn through these failures? I mean, I can, I, I mean, I, so failure, you know, people generally look at failure as like you, you started a venture, the venture succeeds or the venture fails. In reality, there are a bunch of successes and failure. Sorry, guys, my son is showing me his uh, wolf mask right now. Good. Mati, let me finish this. Sorry, guys. And, you know, so, I mean, I can talk to you about failure from a venture standpoint, or I can tell you about failures that you have as you're developing a venture, right? So. And ultimately, I mean, the cliche is that, you know, through failure, you learn, which is true, right? Flip side of that is a failure hurts, right? Lots, especially when you, when you are in the process of it. And I, I, I ran a venture studio for a few years here in London, right? And our, our goal, of course, was to, well, of course, our goal was to prove that we could take an idea from paper to market in 16 weeks. Right. So we thought that we could do that. And obviously, you know, a lot of it was kind of early stage validation, you know, ideation, validating your value proposition, right? Testing with customers, getting the right channel. And in doing so, we, I landed in a, in, in a concept that I thought at the time was a brilliant concept, which was, you know, can we build a platform that will allow parents to learn how their children are interacting with digital technology, right? So, so think about it, a Quora, which at the time had just started and we thought it was super cool, right? So the same level of technology. So mix Quora, so Q&A uh, uh, with, with, with experts from a variety of kind of like fields in, in the education space from like game developers to teachers to child psychiatrists, psychologists, sorry, and kind of like an editorial layer where we'd actually kind of present new products and new, 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 new concepts, new social networks and whatnot, right? And and some paper has done it great. We, and we pour our heart and soul into it, right? We kind of like every day we were coming up with new ways to engage customers, right? We, we, how to bring in new, new users, how to engage them, how to get them to kind of like generate the right questions, how to kind of generate the, the, the answers, how to build that kind of dynamic. And, and every time we looked at what other companies were doing, and we kind of copied, right? Like, well, you know, Quora is doing this. So obviously, they must understand something that we don't understand. Why don't we deploy that feature too, right? Or, you know, like, oh, look, there is this new net. There is this new kind of like community that now is uh, using experts and doing like uh, live streams. You know, we should try that too, right? And so we kept on copying what other people were doing, right? We kept on thinking, well, if they're doing it, they must know something about our customers that we don't know, which makes no sense in retrospect. And, and so we went for like nine, 10 months doing that, right? Thinking, well, but if we deploy this feature, inevitably engagement will happen. 
or if we go after this channel, inevitably customer will come, right? And I mean, obviously you guys can imagine how this ended, right? It ended that we were able to, yeah, we acquire customers, the customers are users, the users kind of like use the product once, twice, and they never came back, right? And so we had this flywheel, we, let's spend more marketing dollars, let's bring more users in so that we can kind of like have these massive leaky buckets where users don't stay and they leave. And it was, it, it's, uh, you know, the, 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 it was incredibly frustrating. You know, ultimately we had to fold because, you know, it makes no sense. We had invested, I think at that point, probably like three quarter of a million uh, in developing the platform, in acquiring users to no avail, right? Um, and obviously the painful part is that we didn't know why. We didn't know what we were doing wrong. You know, we had no idea why is it that copying what other people were doing and it was working for them didn't work for us. And uh, um, yeah, it was a massive wake up call of how, how, how kind of like ignorant we were in how products are built, right? And so it was a massive learning experience, massive failure because again, nine months of doing this with, no avail, with nothing to, to account for. But you know, that's put, that put me to the path of understanding, well, you know what, there must be a better way to do this stuff, right? And obviously then we kind of, I kind of figured it out. But. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing that story. I mean, that's very, I mean, I think anyone who's built the business has, <laughs> has come to yeah. these realizations at some stage. So um, I, I was just wondering, so the, the, what, the revenue generating model was based on advertising for this, uh, for this business or what was the, uh, the idea? I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a brilliant question, right? You know, build it and they will come, bring the customers and you'll monetize it, right? So that's kind of like how many people thought about this community at the time, right? So the Silicon Valley can, way. Yeah. If I can bring 1 million users, inevitably I will mm. be able to make money. Which, yes, if you can bring the million users, but then it becomes a catch-22, right? Like, what do you bring before? The money to bring the million users or the users, right? And when you have like a value proposition that is not strong enough, therefore you cannot attract people for cheap or for, for very few pennies, right? Then you need to be able to monetize immediately because you need to you need to, to support your business case in some extent, right? And you know we we didn't give, we didn't have either, right? So our business model was wishful thinking, and we thought that we could monetize with advertising, and then we started thinking, well, maybe we can monetize by presenting the right by presenting the right product within the right context. But again, if you think about it, you need volume, right? You need like millions and millions of, of, of views on a product to actually get, you know, a conversion. So, yeah. So what I'm hearing here is, uh, and, and is that the, there was probably, uh, well, you were saying that you were copying quite a lot of the, um, the competitors. So maybe this was one, one thing that we can, maybe there's a lesson in there about the copying you said there was quite a lot of churn regarding the um the, the the users who came on the website and then they used it a few times and then and then left um so, right so as an experience now now i can say from 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 my vantage point now after having done this many times and and obviously i learned as i was doing that right the answer is very simple right we were copying things that other companies were doing because we thought that they knew something about our customers that we didn't, which makes no sense. Right? They cannot know anything about a customer. They had a unique insight about their own customers that they were leveraging and it was working for them. We had no idea who our customers were clearly, right? We hadn't understood them. We didn't know what their struggles were. We didn't know what, outcome, what, what outcomes they were looking for. 
you know, we didn't know exactly why either they were using our product, right? What jobs were we helping them do? So like, we, we were clueless. And that's the reality, right? But I do believe, frankly, that most startups out there today still yeah. are clueless about who their customers are, what they're helping them do, what is the context of that customer, what is the struggle, right? And therefore, they copy <laughs> what other companies do, right? I think is a, is a, is, is a, is a pretty common pattern in my experience. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. I've done the same in my in my own business. You start when you start looking around at the competition. Usually, it's not a very good sign, I would say. And no. and another thing that I mean, I, this was a question I had for later on. But as you're talking about it, you, it seems that at, at least what you did well that I didn't do well, for example, is maybe you stopped quite quite early in the um, in in the process. How did you come to the conclusion that okay? Um, you know, we should probably stop this venture because often what happens is people then pivot and pivot and try other things. So what was the, the, the process there to say, okay, maybe we can, we should call it a day. So I, I had a very wise uh, partner at the time, you know, that was not an active, was not actively involved operationally in the company, but was, was sponsoring the, like the studio. And I was like, Francesco, how long is a piece of strength? Really? You can keep, pulling it and pulling until you want, right? But, and it will never end, right? So we just need to, 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 we just need to kind of like come to the realization that in nine months, we haven't learned anything. So we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we're doing wrong. We know what we're doing wrong, but we don't know why, right? And so does it make sense to put good money after bad money, right? It makes no sense, right? And, and to be fair, you know, that was, that, that was like a big slap in the face. I was like, good, frankly, nine months, what do you have to account for, right? And so, which, which, which he was right, you know, and now in retrospect, you know, what does that teach, right? Is that ultimately, you know, when you embark in a new venture, right? You embark in a new venture because you think that you know something other people don't know, right? You have some hypothesis, right? Well, hypotheses are, are, are very scientific in nature, right? What are you trying to test? How do you know? If the hypothesis is right or wrong, right? What are the metrics that you're that you're measuring? And and then you put it at the test of the market, right? If you're hitting the metric, you know that you where you're coming for where, where you're at. If you don't, then the question is why? You know, and, and, and you try to iterate until you get there. Yeah, so so I think the learning is that that's I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought about it, but when you said it, I was like, yeah, that's exactly it. Because I think this is a problem that a lot of people face if you, I mean, it could be either as an entrepreneur or even in a, within a company, if you're building a product, a, a new, new product or service. I mean, these questions uh, will be, you will have to ask themselves, them to yourself. So, and I think you said it exactly right. It's the learning that's important. It's so if, if, as long as you're learning and you're learning what works or what doesn't work, I think then you can keep going. If you still feel okay, I, I still have this to learn or I still have to try this and, and you're confident in the answer. I think that's a good indicator of maybe if you need to keep pushing or not. I, I, I definitely think that's right. If I can actually add something to that, I mean, I obviously second uh, from, from various perspectives, Francesco's uh, point about, you know, what I would call fail learning, right? Uh, you're basically, every time you fail, you're learning something. And, but more important than that, uh, I think, you know, 
especially for a person who's like me, who's always in the front line, who's kind of out there uh, um, uh, going through every brick wall that's in front of me without even wondering what's on the other side. Uh, uh, you know, never underestimate the power of experience. Okay, because we were all advised by people much more experienced than ourselves with 30 years, 40 years uh, more experienced than us. And my father was a very, um, very, very powerful uh, and experienced uh, senior executive in one of the world's largest uh, multinational pharma companies. And, and, you know, he used to always guide me and tell me, Murad, you have to make decisions like this. You have to be ruthless on this. You have to make decisions and cut them immediately, you know? And, and I used to always think, Hey man, you don't know what I'm doing because my stuff is so different and it's so small and it's not a big pharma company and you know, all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, what you come to realize is all businesses are essentially the same thing. There is no difference in the nuance of a, a, a um, metal manufacturer in, in Ukraine to, to a, a you know, Silicon Valley dot com startup over there. The fundamentals are always the same. Uh, how you have to select uh, your people, how you have to prioritize your, your time uh, and, and uh, of course, your investments and, and your, your ideas. Uh, and, and I think uh, the, uh, these things are, are only a matter of your skin gets thicker with the fail learnings. And as it gets thicker, you're able to calculate on the spot um, whether you should step out or stay in right there and then without having to even deliberate with anybody uh, because you've been there before or you've been through something similar to 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 this uh, and your gut starts to tell you hey this feels awfully like the last time i failed you know or, or awfully like the last time that i went down this path and and, and i think francesco and i we, we have a, a real variety of experiences you already mentioned you know we went from entertainment hosting to to uh, uh you know chicken feet trading to 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 fashion e-commerce to ultimately on my side pharma and him to 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 advising in in bigger uh, ventures of unilever etc so you know we've seen a lot we've been around the block and i think at a relatively young ages we've both been around the block and nowadays i have people working for me that are you know 10 years older than me reporting to me that that have, that have phds and doctorates and everything they have but i can guarantee you one thing that that almost nobody coming from multinationals can do what we do almost nobody uh, and although they might have been general managers of countries where they're making hundreds of millions of dollars for a multinational they may have opened up hundreds of of uh, smaller countries they may have opened up new segments new product categories the moment you take them out of that setting of having the a well-established infrastructure uh, and and uh, fundamental SOPs and, and, you know, mega HR structures and legal backing and finance, all that. And you put them into an office where they're like, okay, now get started. You know, and he's like, okay, but where's my team? You know, I need a team. Oh, well, do you have the funding for the team? Now go raise the money. Convince those people that you're passionate about this idea that you brought forward. And there's going to be a thousand other people like you and no one's going to care about your former CV because now you have a new venture and that new venture means nothing relative to what you did before. Uh, you know, so I, I think that really uh, the earlier people can get falling down, the, the faster they're going to be able to learn how to minimize uh, their their lack of success with new ventures. So, I mean, I would suggest anybody mm, 
you know, yes, it's great to have masters and MBAs and all that for your CV. But if you have an opportunity to get into a job at the age of 14, do it and keep doing it every year as often as you can and be observant, you know, pay attention, uh, try to pick up as much detail as possible around you. And, and, uh, you know, you have to put yourself in the hot seat. Uh, to, to kind of uh, to become a pizza, you have to cook. It's very simple. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say also this um, learning by doing and getting the experience and failing. I, I, I wanted to which extent also there's a question of of of, of personal mindset uh, relating to this because uh, a lot of people also might experience. So if they have a failure, then it might basically crush them, and they might you know feel really not not get up from it so i wonder if if there's 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 ways for for people to hmm, uh, go about this without uh getting knocked down totally you know and that's there's that's there's no there's no way for that and, I, and i'll tell you why uh and i'm a person who has most probably been to the extremes on uh failures and successes i think my current ventures in the let's say in the path to becoming a mega success it's going to take time but but we can feel it it's growing it's scaling and all of those kind of things um but the downside is uh and the downside meaning uh you know i've had experiences where i had to wind down companies right and and when winding down companies uh, after five years of dedicating yourself exposing yourself you think very highly of your image at that time because all that little company is to you is your world Right. I mean, you've dedicated every minute of every day to that business um, and you've gone and reached further out. In most cases, you've sold yourself above your capabilities and, and you've done this by getting a lot of people to believe in you, either as Murat or Francesco or, or Jonathan or uh, Jan or Scott or, or, or whoever it might be. And when the winding down comes, you'll you will absolutely go through panic attacks anxiety you'll have to most probably see a therapist or two or you'll have to talk to a couple of your friends for extended period of time and drink a little bit too much to get over the fact that you're failing and likely the recovery of your mindset will take up to two years huh? so the immediate impact might only be you know for for six months eight months but but the real impact of how it cements into your decision making going forward it really takes about two years and until you find something else to focus on right that that's uh, because in between you're in a gap you feel empty your life is over you know nothing's ever going to be the same people hate me and all this kind of stuff and i think one of the biggest lessons i learned was when i had to call up one of the biggest advertising agencies in the world that we owed half a million dollars to after doing a mega campaign to market across the united states you know our our products um i called the chief operating officer whom I had, you know, met originally signing the deal. And, uh, and I told him and I said, guys, I'm, I'm going to give you an offer right now. And I was just, mind you, I was about 24, 25 years old at this stage. Okay. And I'm calling a guy who's about 45, 50, maybe. Uh, and I told him, listen, I'm going to give you an option. I'm going to give you 10 cents on the dollar today, or you're going to get nothing tomorrow. Okay. And, and I would highly suggest you get this, um, you get, you take this offer. Uh, otherwise I'm really looking out for your benefit in this situation because I'm making this call to about you know 50 other people, uh, that, that, that I, that I somehow need to manage and all of that. And I told him I'm fully transparent. I'll send you our financials, audited books, everything that we have in our hands. But this is the reality 
business is winding down. It didn't work for, for whatever reason, X, Y, Z. And ultimately he, he accepted and, and, and we proceeded. And I did this most probably with 80% of the people. So I was able to kind of clean the books of the company and this experience, what it did for me, and I'm coming to your point now is today, I think about last week, I had an issue in one country with a uh, government uh, social security division that was being very aggressive on, on, on penalties for not being able to meet tender requirements for pharmaceutical products, etc. And you should have seen the level of panic in our office of, of the people that were responsible, the, the sales reps, the people who were responsible for the budget in that given country, you know, all this kind of stuff. And when they came to me, I mean, my answer was, guys, calm down. It's okay. You know, we'll figure it out. Now, first thing you have to do is go and face-to-face, uh, -face, make this meeting face-to-face, -face, explain your issues, why things happened, how they happened, you know, get advice from our lawyers, do all of this. But basically, there's no need to panic. Like, this excessive excitement over potential failure is going to cause you to fail. Right. So first solve the problem before you actually go and try to make the problem much worse than it is in your head. Right. And that would have never my calmness would have never occurred if I hadn't gone through a place where I've rock bottomed my emotions in the previous cases many years ago. Right. So that's where I think that the learning experience is essential and not to be avoided. It's inevitable. Everybody fails. You have to accept it as a reality. You just have to minimize exposure when you know you're going to fail and, and really litigate it to a point where, where uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be detrimental uh, as best as possible. And so can do I you just... believe, sorry, go ahead, Jan. No, I was just going to say, I cannot just say, I mean, I love, I love your honesty. Like, I mean, they, it, it, it's just flat out nice to hear, hear you say this and, and, and how you describe this, because I think, it's very easy to underestimate, and, and, and I certainly did this, how strongly you're tying your identity to the, to the work you're doing. I mean, you can, you can for a certain time, say, well, this is just a job. And then when shit hits the fan, usually that changes quite quick, or it, it did at least for me. And I completely underestimated how much this changes who you are. And, and as you say, if you put in sweat and tears and everything, suddenly that is not just, it's not just, well, a company or whatever. You, can, you, can, you might want to tell yourself this, but it's not true. In the moment that that you actually run into troubles, and I I love how you described this in all honesty. How how well that's 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 a journey that you have to go through, and then really experience the failure uh, in order to make that experience. I wanted to kind of maybe uh, there is also the other other one. So there is also those people I think, um, and you mentioned them briefly, who sit almost like in a golden cage. Like I have a couple of times. Um, let's say interactions with, with people or clients, let's say, who who sit in a golden cage. They are those 30, 45 year old people. They have a nice salary. They always dream of being an entrepreneur. What would you kind of but and, and then exactly when they jump out, they worry that, well, they're gonna fail or the whole structure isn't there. But but I feel like they have the same kind of feelings that you had there in, in New York, where I said, I don't wanna I don't want to work in its big corporate. I don't I want to start something by myself. But but they hesitate to jump out. They hesitate to leave this, as I would call it, the golden cage. Like, how, what could, can you give advice to those to those people? What, how, how can you start, or how can you? Well, I mean, look, I had something that I think many people uh, maybe don't have because they they have certain 
you know, limitations in how they viewed life, right? From my, before starting university, I wanted to immediately do something, yeah. right? I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something. And, and whatever opportunity I get, I'm going to jump on it. But to put a framework into it, uh, wh when I actually finished university and, and I, I was working at UBS, uh, it, I was working there before I finished university too. So it was like an internship until I finished and then became a full-time kind of situation. And all I realized was, okay, who's sitting around me? And I had people who were brilliant, right? Top Ivy League guys, uh, you know, that they, they had been there for 10 years. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I started going and asking my boss, I was like, you know, how much, how much does this position earn? You know, how long have they been here? Oh, well, somebody said, well, you know, this person earns, uh, well, this position in specific, not the person, but position can earn between, you know, 140 and 100 whatever 60,000 after 10 years and I was like are you are you shitting me <laughs> sorry but but you want me to sit here and 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 you know really suck it up and and pretend like I'm somebody I'm not for a period of time that I can hopefully learn how to fill some marketing job jackets and and uh yeah you know maybe go to some congresses rub shoulders with a bunch of people who are actually managing the money and 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 with mega clients and all of that while I'm doing some back office stuff just to do the grunt work for 10 years and I'm not married I have no obligations over anybody else well, guess what? Right now is the time for mm -hmm. me to fail. Like if I want to fail, it's right now. Right after college is when you want to go and spend the next 10 years to fail as much as you can fail. Now that is a risk, okay? It's a calculated risk. I mean, at that time, uh, you know, if yeah. five years later I went and applied for a, uh, let's say, multinational position, uh, it would be very tough to get in because at the end of the day, what they're looking for is very clear. They don't want disruptors, right, in, in big companies. What they want are people who fit into exactly that golden cage that you're defining, uh, who have aspirations that are very much goal-oriented, deliverable-oriented, uh, and, and um, not really as free-thinking in terms of their creativity, right? And, and so uh, I think, look, if there's any part of you that doesn't love what you're doing, I think stop it. <laughs> I mean, you know, stop what you're doing. It's like, what, what, what the hell are you going to lose? Worst case you're going to lose is maybe one, two years to try to do something. Of course, be wise about it. I mean, try to, uh, you know, uh, find something that you are absolutely passionate about. I'm sure we're going to get into this in a bit, but, uh, you know, uh, all ideas come from a place of emotional attachment to something an entrepreneur feels a conviction about. Like, this is wrong. This is not being serviced. There, there is not sufficient amount of, of, of uh, you know, thought going behind this. And no one's really passionate about it. And I don't think the need is really being addressed. And, and, it, and it's hitting me to heart. It's hitting whatever my friends, my family, my relatives to heart. So let me start there. What is that thing that I'm really passionate about? And the rest is just, you know, how deep does the rabbit hole go? Just what I'm talking about. I mean, you know what? It's inevitable, right? That if you are in a in a golden cage, in a large corporation, right? You have uh, you have different type of risks that you think that you have. Right? There is a reputational risk of getting out of that cage and exposing yourself, and all of a sudden you're vulnerable because you don't have the back, right? So there is a big psychological component to that, right? Then there are the practical risks, right? How much can I actually? How much risk can I take on me, right? I mean, like frankly, if you're 40, 45, you have kids, your wife. You know, you have a social environment, people are looking mortgage at you, look, stuff. mortgage, yeah. so th there are a lot of considerations, right? So, so it's, 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 not, it's not an easy decision, right? I mean, frankly, if you put it into, a right, into the right context, it's not easy, right? 
so on one end, it's like, can you take the risk, right? On the other hand, you have the right mentality to take the risk, right? And I think mm-hmm. that kind of like, you know, like, you know, people talk a lot about this growth mindset, right? Can you learn from failure? Well, truthfully, many people can't, right? Many people kind of get paralyzed when they do, when somebody says no. They get paralyzed when they take a step and they step and they fall, right? And so you have to take those into account, right? One, are you the kind of person that is willing to put yourself out there, get a lot of no's, fail, learn, do get, be introspective about it, right? And move on. And two, can you just practically speaking deal with the risk that you're taking, right? In reality, in most cases, the risk is perceived. It's not real, right? There is financial risk. I get that. But most of the time it's perceived, right? I feel that people are going to think this of me. I feel that I cannot do it, right? So it's all, I mean, I always tell my daughter, it's all in your mind, right? At the end of the day, it's yeah. true. it is all in your mind, right? Just, just keep in mind that you will fail. It's in inevitability. Maybe, you do, maybe your plan doesn't fail. But along the way, you will fail, right? Many different ways. Just take it, learn, move on. If you can, if you are that type of person, right? Some people are, some people are. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's why I think it also very much depends on, on your personality type. I mean, I, I followed kind of a similar path to yours. I was working in a, in a bank and decided to quit to uh, create my, my company. And um, I, I have to say, in, in retrospect, I do wonder if, if that was really the, the best move at the time. I mean, definitely put a, a hold to my, my career in that, that space. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but at the same time also, um, you know, finding the energy sometimes to actually, um, actually pursue an idea. I, I also now feel a bit more uh, apprehension in, in just going out there and doing a new thing. Um, so th- that was my experience and I, I definitely learned tons doing it and I really, I really liked it, but it's, I mean, I do wonder sometimes if, if I shouldn't have waited a bit longer and get more experience or not. It's, it's an open question. And, and I, I think, mean, I know, and many statistics show that a lot of the most successful people going into entrepreneurship are older, you know, so it's, I think in the end, it, it, it's, it very much depends on the individual person. So here, here's a question for you there. I mean, I completely disagree with, with, the, with the approach of, you know, getting more experience to do that. But of course, it fits with my character, right? I mean, my character mm-hmm. is one that I just don't see limitations. I only see opportunities. I mean, you give me any product. I have a problem saying no to any product because I'm like, oh, I know how to move this. You know, I know how to make something out of this. I just need to put grit behind it and I need to get my... Uh, you know, butt off my chair and get out there and, and meet as many people as possible and find out the right target to make it happen. But more importantly, how many successful startups, and I'm talking about the big ones, the revolutionary ones from Uber to Tesla to whomever, Googles and whatever you see, how many of them are gray haired, you know, 50, 60, 70 year old men that you see out there that started those businesses? None of them. They're all young people that were brilliant. And they found a gap in the market, but more importantly, they they literally worked themselves to death. Uh, and I think you know Jeff Bezos is one of these guys. I know his movie is coming out soon as well. Uh, you know the, the the guy literally just started an online bookstore to take it on against Barnes uh, Barnes and Noble. I mean, uh, and and everyone said he was crazy. And this reminds me actually of Francesco and my meeting when we were setting when we launched the fashion company 
maybe just some some background on that. Uh, so Francesco and I um, convinced uh, Germany's largest catalog uh, company, which at the time was the biggest competitor to Amazon, but on the European side. And nowadays they've lost, you know, on the let's say at least from my perspective the digitalization aspect and stayed print for too long i guess but they're still a big company like 18 billion 20 billion revenues all this stuff and they had a brand that was a hundred million dollar brand that was selling in about 20 countries or 25 countries but not in the us and uh we through one through a consequence of events got in touch with them uh and we convinced them to enter with us into the US under a JV, basically, right? And uh, you know they made certain investment. We had to raise the money. They put the inventory. This kind of deal structure, and and they actually had a presence in the US, over a billion dollars in revenues. But they were not willing to risk their reputation to fail at the time uh, with a brand that that you know. I guess uh, all of these guys, experienced guys, you're talking about in Germany, who are sitting around a board, where we're basically not willing to go into that. And we happened to when did we launch this? But well, we we launched this literally um, in 2007, 2008, right before the economic collapse. Okay, and, and, and this is now a Francesco. It's a it's let's say um, a, a wake up call to what we actually did. You know, we went and approached a whole bunch of investment banks at the time, local investment banks that through a guy uh, through consultants and whatnot who were focused on the fashion industry, yeah, and we went to them for fundraising, and and they said, "Are you out of your mind?" You know, look at the economy, look what's going on. Everything is collapsing and you want to launch a retail business in this environment. You know, it, it was, it was uh, in retrospect, pretty funny, you know, looking at my, myself from outside, I would have been like, wow, you're nuts, you know, but all I heard, and I don't know if Francesco's felt the same was the moment they said that we were just like, well, these guys have no clue what they're talking about, you know, and, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to prove them wrong. Right. And, and uh, thank you for, for your lack of support. And, and here we go. Off we go. And about, I think, three, four months after that, uh, through, through several mechanisms of really reaching out everywhere, we went and raised the money we needed to, to, to launch the business at the time when everything was risky. Right. And we got, I think, at the time, about two million uh, to launch two million US dollars to, to, to launch the, the business. And we immediately went into establishing the e-commerce platforms. We, we went into opening wholesale uh, channels. We were a full uh, multi-channel uh, business uh, in the fashion industry uh, that was basically Zara for women 30 plus. So it was for women who had had children who were working, slightly higher price point at the time, but with a huge variety of styles. And we have this backing of this huge conglomerate who's doing all the production design uh, and everything. Uh, but in, re in retrospect, uh, you know, just what, why it didn't succeed, uh, let's say, uh, coming back to your failures question, uh, it wasn't that, you know, we, we did a lot of things right. We had amazing ideas and we built the whole infrastructure perfectly. But the reality is that we, did, we underestimated, one, the amount of money this requires, two, the amount of fundamentals it requires from the supplying company uh, in terms of the margins that we were receiving. 
um, it just didn't, it, we were being charged too much as a result of it, our end price was being too high and that made it more complicated to get customers and, and things like this. So, so, you know, I think that business could have been successful if in retrospect, you know, maybe we would have chosen to, to target our money, maybe only to one channel, maybe only to one state rather than trying to launch it in multiple states at the same time, you know, and take it one step at a time, or if we had more money, maybe. Uh, and, and brought on board some more people who had done it uh, more frequently, which means more money <laughs> because without that, you can't. I don't know, Francesco, do you have any pers perspective or, or insights into that that might, you know, shine a different light? So, we, 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 so you start asking about, uh, you, you start with, uh, with uh, you know, sometimes you, you, you feel if you had more experience, right? I think that that's how we went down to that, uh, yeah. to this rabbit hole of a part, you know. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You know that, right? So you can always have more experience. And in retrospect, yeah, I could have waited. Or in retrospect, uh, I should not have waited, right? I mean, I think that to some extent, you know, it's what drives you and what is the right thing to do at that time, right? Like I can't work in a large corporate, although I do right now, sort of. I, I'm just motivated by other things, right? So I, I need to, to, to make things happen. And the only way that I know how to do that is do it myself, right? Which is one of the reasons why, you know, we jump into this opportunity, for example, of a part, right? So it was about, we need, we need again to, 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 to make our imprint in this city. How can we do it? Let's go and find the most absurd and difficult business to build in the US. A fashion <laughs> company. <laughs> to which we have no experience in, right? We, like we, we have zero experience in actually doing fashion business, right? right? I mean, and, 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 and granted, you know, we had no, we had very little risk other than ourselves, right? So we, we were not committed. We didn't have a, a, a kids. We didn't have a mortgage. We didn't have that stuff, right? But it, so to us, it was about, you know, we are driven by wanting to prove to ourselves that we can do this, right? And that was our motivator to go into Germany, convince like a $20 billion company to give us the license of their kind of like brand, their little jewel to take into the US, right? Which is, Frankly, in retrospect, fucking insane, right? I would have, I would have, I would have told us to just leave, right? But you know, our desire of, of the, our, our our drive to 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 prove that we could do it made us do it, right? Could we have done it five years later? Maybe not, right? Maybe we would not have been so so crazy to to take on such a challenge, right? You know, time is whatever it is, right? Like the timing, it's always is always in retrospect, you can always tell whether that was the right time or not. You just need to do it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, do, do you think this um, this value? I mean, invaluable experience that you've gained through the years and through your experiences. Do Do you think this is something that you can only learn through actually doing, or do you think there's a part of this that can be taught? Do you think there are some things now that you might may, maybe have read, or that you can actually learn without the experience? So. It's, it's an interesting question, right? I mean, the, the obvious answer that you will hear from both of us is that no, you cannot be taught. But, right? Experience is important, right? So, you know, we are doing something that we had never done before and we will never know how to do it unless we, right? That's simple. But there are people who have done it, right? There are people who have walked those roads. There are people who have uh, kind of like, you know, banged their head against the wall and, and, and got hurt. And those are the people that can guide you and can, and can mentor you and can tell you, you know, watch out because you're doing something or you're thinking about this in the wrong way, right? I mean, case in point, you know, like 
you know, when 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 Murad started mentioning about his dad and his experience and blah blah, I mean, but having somebody as a mentor that has thirty years of experience running like a massive sales teams across the world, can you buy that? No, right. So that's an amazing experience that obviously can just enrich your 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 can can accelerate your learning, right? It's you cannot learn it just by talking to the guy, right? You ultimately need to you need to do the work, right? You need to go. You need to have your own instincts. You have to make your own mistakes. You need to, kind of, but you can absorb a lot from other people, right? Yeah, I mean, I I think one one thing to add to that is that you know luck prefers the prepared. Let's say uh, so. So it, it definitely the the you know being well read up as much as you can on whatever yeah. is relevant to the business that you're about to launch like the apart example was actually a, an operations execution and marketing gig okay so if we were not developing products we were not manufacturing products we were taking a selection of products tailoring them to us taste and flavor and then trying to execute on on um you know operational excellence of delivery to hundreds of small boutique retail stores a, our own e-commerce platform and and then also to kind of like the the let's say Nordstrom's and and whatever else including like the Groupons and Rulalas we did events there to get rid of you know uh, products that were kind of uh, needed to be discounted and whatever so uh, the amount of people on the front end and the amount of companies and different models business models that we were exposed to taught us so much about their business model we read all those contracts we knew what they wanted. I knew that a Groupon was going to collect X percentage from me for each sale that they do. I knew how many people they could drive uh, traffic to our website. I mean, we, we did we did so many creative methods to take a multi-channel business and try to generate more volume and let it be become a living organism. Uh, but at the end of the day, we didn't have an R and D team that was building products, right? So so it was a complete different gig. What it did teach us at the end of the day is how to not mess up operations and that among all the other startups that we've done was a piece of the puzzle that 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 allowed us maybe to do what we do today which is operations marketing product development you know or everything we're involved in everything now so I mean, only thing I would tell you, Jonathan, is I know you feel down about whatever business that you you may uh, feel is not successful today. Uh, and, and yeah, you might want to go back into working for someone else for a while uh, so that you don't basically sit around on your own dime. I, that I think is a financially wise decision. But while you're there, you should be thinking about the next venture and get yourself back in as quickly as possible because, because you know, time is your biggest enemy. And, and as you get older, you get more tired and, and startups need a lot of energy, you know, and, and they, they need like uh, physical energy, literally. I mean, you have to be able to stay up and think and constantly think and all this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, stick to it. Don't give up. Yeah. Well, thank you for those wise words of advice. The um, you said something interesting before Murat that uh, all businesses are the same, and I, I I thought this was maybe could you expand a bit on on this statement? What do you mean sure. by that? Sure, the fundamentals of every business, uh, every product that's being sold, uh, the fundamentals that determine how you uh, evaluate the product, the go-to-market strategies, the channels you have for sales. Uh, the kind of uh, expertise that you need are 
are pretty well defined across the board, right? I mean, whether you're selling a commodity product, uh, like, like, you know, a company has, let's say, I don't know. I have a, I have a friend, actually, this is a good example. I have a friend who produces super high quality threads. Okay. And this is his only business. That's all he does. And he basically, you know, buys machinery that are mega machinery, super expensive. And they produce the threads that are used in all of the high quality lingeries that, uh, for the elastic parts. And they're premium quality. So you can't really get them in China because uh, the high quality value add, let's say textiles are produced more in like Turkey, Germany, uh, Switzerland, and these kind of countries. And then the cheaper stuff you get done in, in, in other countries uh, wherever possible. So for example, this guy, I mean, is in manufacturing. Uh, you know, he has to source raw materials, right? And then, and then on a selling side, he sells B2B. Well, what is the difference between that and what I do in pharma, right? I deal with manufacturing sites. I have to source raw materials. I have to put them into a production schedule. I have to go and do B2B sales because I don't sell to patients, right? I mean, my customer isn't a patient. My customer actually is a blend of doctors who don't consume my product, but who recommend it, payers who are usually governments and insurances who never actually meet me because they don't really meet you face to face at all. It's just email applications and getting approvals or whatever. And really the customer is either the, the wholesale distributor or the hospital who's procuring the drug uh, at the end of the day or a pharmacy, let's say, is your real customer. But you don't actually work on customer satisfaction on the pharmacy because you have something they need. The demand comes from a physician and goes on. And same thing applies for the guy selling threads is that he knows who he sells to. Well, he sells to Zara. He's the producer. He goes to the procurement head at Zara and, and, and basically has to maintain a service relationship, although he has a product. Okay. And, and this is, I think, where I would say, and most, uh, we did discuss this with Francesco before, you know, our services different than products oh uh, there that's is right. no, you mentioned that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah there is <laughs> my next question is, yeah yeah good yeah, it's a good crossover um services and products are not different at all they're both the same thing in order to sell a product you have to service people okay and in order to provide a service you have to be the product so at the end of the day if you're a consultant what is your product it's you, it's what you know, and it's, it's that accumulated training that you have and the advice that you give, but how you are, are presenting any product is through servicing. So you can maintain that customer. You can improve, let's say consumption or, or repeat buying habits. And of course, uh, create a charming relationship that everyone thinks about you when they want uh, that product or something in that category. I, I'm going to throw this to Francesco now because uh, I, I think he, he can also give his two cents on it, but definitely don't separate services and products. Services and product, what do I think? I don't know. I don't understand why people think they're different. I'm sure that there is a difference. And I don't necessarily, I don't, do you mean, uh, like what is, what is a product according to you and what is a service? Jonathan. According to me, okay, well, so for me, uh, a service delivers an outcome and a product delivers a means to, to an outcome. But I agree that in the end, um, they are very similar. In my experience, what I would say is, is I would say there is a, a bit of a difference is in the 
just in the practicalities, because it seems to me that building a product, sometimes there's a bit more rigidity in building your value proposition. When I build, I thought about services, one of the, the what do we call the, um, the risks or the, one of the challenges you have is often you have, you can always change your service. You can always rearrange it and add quote unquote features very easily. You just change the description of the service. You just say, okay, well, um, we're not making this, say you're making a course. You can say, I'm not making this course for these kinds of people. I'm making the course for this kind of person. And I, you just change the, the syllabus a bit. And so I, I think there's, there's a level of flexibility in defining your value proposition in services, which is both obviously very beneficial and um, has presents advantages because you can very quickly modify whatever it is you're, you're offering. But the downside, what I've noticed for myself is that you then uh, often maybe don't stay long enough in the space that you were. So the tendency is to always, ah, you know what, it didn't quite work. Let's just change the thing quickly. Okay. And you're always changing stuff and you're never... Um, you're never actually arriving anywhere. And the converse, obviously, for products is, is it's different. So the, the difficulty there is that you, you have often an upfront investment in your value proposition. So it's, you, you don't have as much flexibility in changing your value proposition. And that in, in this situation, uh, well, there's the potential okay. loss that you can have if you have the wrong one, right? So... so Interesting. Right? So two things. So one, I, I, so you're saying that product, a service delivers an outcome. Sorry, guys. Uh, do you hear background noise on my end? No. I heard a cat. <laughs> I heard something definitely. Yeah, there is. I don't know. There is some weird work happening here. Anyway, so you said that a service delivers an outcome, but a product is a means of getting to an outcome, right? That's so a I, diff one definition. Yeah. Which, which I would, I would agree, I would kind of disagree, right? I think like they are both different ways of reaching the same outcome, right? So I could, uh, let's just take an example, right? If I need to, if my outcome is, uh, I work at Unilever right now, so I need to kind of use this kind of like weird example, right? But if my outcome is to feel, if, if I'm a woman and my outcome is to feel confident tonight when I go out for a party, right? I can do Two things, potentially, right? I could uh, wash my hair with this brand new shampoo that I just bought that has all these nutrients and vitamins and keeps my, my hair kind of like adds volume and whatnot. Outcome is still the same. I want to look confident tonight when I go out to a party. Or I can go to a hairdresser. They will do it for me, but my outcome is still the same, right? So the outcome, I think, are always the same. The difference is how you deliver on that, on that promise, right, on that outcome. Now, I do see that you're, when you're saying, well, you know, from, from actually a product development standpoint, from a value proposition standpoint, they do change, right? So when you're talking about physical products versus digital products, yeah, I mean, you don't have the flexibility of iterating as quickly as you can on a physical product, as you can do on a digital product, right? So to some extent, it's almost, I mean, I've, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot because we, we, because, you know, part of the work that I do is to, is to advise uh, um, the, the internal incubator that we have at Unilever in, in building new brands, right? And so the question is, how do you do that uh, as a startup, right? How, you know, like, how do you do it? How do, you, you, how, how do we, do we validate the proposition? 
how do we get to market with minimum quantities without spending 10 million, right, on production, right? And obviously, you have the constraints, right? In digital, I can uh, deploy, d deploy like, uh, whatever. You know, I can run a Facebook ad to test a value proposition, and then I can drive people to my website, and I can have them sign up, and I can do all this kind of work, right? And if it doesn't work, I can keep change, right? With physical product, it's a little bit different because you are constrained by the production, right? How, you can, how, how quickly you can produce, how many quantities you need, you know, do I have the right ingredients? Uh, you know, are they arriving on time? So all this stuff. And so there is much more work that needs to be done at, ahead of time to define what that proposition is, right? Um, but still, right, then you can, you still have this very similar characteristics, right? You can still figure out what is your MVP, right? Do you need, for example, like this ingredient, right? Or can you prove the value proposition without a specific exotic ingredient, right? Do you need to have the packaging that looks like this or can you cut or can you deliver it faster by changing the packaging, right? So you can still do the same type of analysis, right? You can still find that kind of identify what is the kind of like the minimal viable product if you wish you know keeping in consideration the constraints that you have right it's yeah so that's kind of like that's how i i would differentiate it with it one is execution is definitely different but from an outcome i think it's the same but but just one thing to add to that from from our side as as people who start companies for a living uh it's still the same thing right i mean how we approach whether we're selling a service or preparing or planning for a service or we're planning for a product, we approach it the same way. It's just the nuances that are changing along the way, depending on your distribution channel, depending on your delivery and all of that. But it, it comes back to your, let's say, if you studied actual, uh, you know, in, in, and if you went to an MBA class, uh, classes, you know, they would tell you, okay, what are your, you know, main marketing activities? What are your distribution operations? How does finance and accounting work? Well, all of that holds true, you know, for a company that you start, you just have to deal with people rather than just the Excel spreadsheets and the books that you've been learning from. And so that, that complicates things is the people factor, uh, because you have to convince people to actually buy into uh, the ideas that you're coming up with. I think most probably all of us came up with fantastic ideas in our university times of whether you did a thesis or you did a paper in some class, you know, I look before the iPhone existed, my final thesis in, in school was as a company called tabletop technologies. It, uh, it was called uh, T3. And basically I contacted a company again in Japan who had the first ever multi-touch screen, uh, uh, basically screens that they were, they were distributing. And my whole thing was that I wanted to, create these tables for offices where multiple people around the table could be working on digital screens, all could be touching it, sharing stuff together. Now, fast forward, like, you know, four years after that, the iPhone comes out and three years later, the iPad comes out and all of that. So the idea was already there. Many people had the idea. It's just that the, and, and the business model doesn't change. It's just the execution and, and the perfection with which Apple actually launches products that ultimately, and most probably the timing too, that, that ultimately made it what it is. But the technology existed for many years at the end of the day. So that's why I say it's always the same thing. It's just some people do it better than others. And that requires experience at the end of the day. So this ends part one of our discussion with Murat Goka and Francesco Cavalletti. Please send any comments or ideas for future shows to productquestpodcast at gmail.com.
just have to put a little more swing into it. Francesco Cardaletti. Francesco Cardaletti. Yeah, there you go.